Uh, This morning we're going to be in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and our text will be verses 12 through 18. I'll give you a second to turn there. This week, as I've been studying this passage, I have been wrestling with my words and these words, and I have been delighting in it. So that is my prayer this morning for all of us, that we get to delight in this amazing passage. All right. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. So it's been a minute since we've been in Philippians. Pastor Dan's been working through Hebrews, and it's been months. I think February is the last time we were in Philippians. So I want to kind of jog our memory real quick of where we're at Because Paul starts with a really big therefore. And so we need to know what is his stream of thought before we start to really look into this passage. So if we look back up to chapter 1, verse 27, we see kind of Paul's overarching command for this section. That is, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the big idea that Paul's been working out in the verses after that. He started with showing us that to live lives worthy of the gospel meant to live in unity in chapter 1, verse 27. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he showed us that living lives worthy of the gospel is to be humble as Christ was humble. And in these verses about Christ's humility, Paul introduces something else. He introduces Christ's obedience. In 2.8, he explains that the manner in which Christ humbled himself was in becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result of his obedience, Christ is then exalted. So now following this text about Christ's obedience and his exaltation, Paul writes, Therefore, therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Again, following Christ's example of obedience, we are to be obedient. 
in order to live the lives worthy of the gospel. Our obedience is displayed then in our working out our salvation. And obedience is, is pretty easy, right? <laughs> it's easy to obey. It's simple to obey, isn't it? No, absolutely not. If we are honest, it's actually against our complete nature to obey. But our passage this morning calls us to obedience. And the good news is, it doesn't just say obey or figure it out. The text this morning is a text we can and we should delight in reading and studying because it shows us that we're not just told to obey, we're made to obey. God works into us what we lack. He gives us the ability to obey. What we see in this text is that we work out what God works in. That's the point. We work out what God works in. In this passage, we're going to see what this working out looks like, the purpose of it, and the amazing result. So to do so, we're going to break it up into three sections of how we work out what God works in. In verses 12 to 13, we work by his power. In verses 14 to 16, we work as his lights. And in verse 17 to 18, we work for God's delight and our joy. So let's jump back in. As we've said, Paul starts this passage with therefore. So he's linking it back to the idea of living lives worthy of the gospel. And now he's going to show us that living lives worthy of the gospel means to live in obedience. But before he gets to the command, I, I, I do want to kind of sidestep and just say I love what Paul says first. Before he gives us a command, he tells them, you guys have been obedient. Keep on keeping on. Hold the line. Just a side note, I think we can all learn from that, that before we exhort, we should encourage. Paul's always encouraging us before he exhorts us. And that's just a wonderful truth. But anyway, Paul gives us a command writing, work out your own salvation. There's no question that that's calling for us to do something. He's telling the readers, he's telling the Philippians to respond with their feet moving and their hands working. Someone wrote, it's, it's impossible to tone down the force with which Paul here points to our conscious activity. Like This is emphatic. Work out your own salvation. But it's our conscious activity in what exactly? What does that mean? Well, Paul says we work out our salvation. And that's a loaded word. And we really, really need to understand what Paul means by the word salvation. Because it's easy to just jump to some conclusions. So does Paul mean work out your salvation as in work out your being saved or your justification? Is that, is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. Nowhere in any of Paul's writings, even nowhere in Philippians, is Paul saying you earn or you merit salvation. Not your righteousness, not your payment for sins, not your promise of eternal life. Those things were secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. 
Our righteousness is solely because Christ lived the perfect righteous life that is attributed to us through faith. Our payment of sin is only because Christ bore every single one of our sins on the cross and paid for it. And our hope in resurrection is only because he was raised first. Paul makes this abundantly clear in all of his letters. Ephesians 2.8, he writes, For by the grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And even here in Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 6, he tells the Philippians that he is sure that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is no Pauline sidestepping. He's not making a side note saying, yeah, that's true, but you also need to do this. There's no God does his part and you do your part and then salvation works. That is not what Paul's talking about. What he does mean in working out our salvation is living in light of the gospel, living in light of our salvation. Another way you might say it is his main idea, live lives worthy of the gospel. We might even call this idea sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. So we're to actively, we're to work, deliberately become more obedient as Christ was obedient. But how was Christ obedient? Well, in 2.8, Paul makes it very clear that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the depths of Christ's obedience. That was his unrelenting and his unswerving obedience. But friends, we struggle to love our neighbors. I struggle to not get mad while I drive. How in the world are we supposed to be as obedient as Christ was obedient? We can't. At least, not on our own power. But what if there was another power, a greater power, that would work in and through us? Well, look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're correct. We can't do it. We can't obey, not on our own. But we can work out by his power. Verse 13 explains that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for or because God works in us. And that's why we have fear and trembling, because it's God working in us. It's, that is awesome. The power of God is working in our lives to change us. And what's it changing? It's changing our wills and our works. Essentially, it's changing our desires and our abilities. So God's giving us everything. He's giving us new desires that now want to obey, where we didn't want to before, now we want to. And he's giving us new ability to do what we could never do without him. He gives us the whole thing. This is what he promised in Jeremiah 30, verse 33. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what God has promised to work in us, to change our wills, and to change our works. But it's not a general promise. This is a covenantal promise, which we've been walking through Hebrews, and we've been seeing what that means. We've, we've been seeing that this is the new covenant promise. And there's only one way into the new covenant. And that is through the guarantor of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. He is the one who bought the, paid for the new covenant with his blood. And so by receiving him through empty hands of faith, we enter into the new covenant. And our wills and our, our abilities are then changed. It's what Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, this, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has come to Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ, the law is now within you. It's written on your hearts. Your desires have changed. The law is no longer outside of you and a burden that you have to work toward, but it's a desire within you that you now work out. That's what God does. We work by his power. I've been thinking of this as a watermill, or I've been trying to think of this as a watermill. A watermill is made to do a job, right? It's made to work, but it cannot work on its own at all. It has a design to do the job, but it can't do it without power. And that power is the water, the current running that turns the wheel and turns all the gears and all the belts inside this mill so the mill can now work. But see, if that water stops, there's no power. It just shows that without the water, there's no milling. The water mill has to have the power worked into it, not so it can work with it, not so it can work alongside it, but that it can work out. It can work using the power of the water. We are like this water mill. When we think about our inability to obey, the task is not the problem. We are designed, we are made to obey. We are made to do this. The problem is we don't have any power on our own. We need a river. We need the water. And God is that water. He is the power that works in us that we work out. He's the steady flowing stream that we need to turn our wheels, to constantly give us the power to do what he has called us, what he has made us to do. We can work with everything in us. That's why we can work. That's why we can take this command as an emphatic statement. Because if we're in Christ, we can deliberately and diligently work with fear and trembling because God has worked in us. He has changed our desires and he has now given us the ability to do what he commands. And what that means for us is that there's hope and that there's confidence for those in Christ. Because God is working in you so that you can then work out your salvation. This is not just a command that just says figure it out. This is a command that invites you to rely on God's power in you to work out what he commands. There's no question, can you quit that sin? Can you witness to others? Can you have that hard conversation? Can you forgive that person? Can you work out your salvation? Absolutely. 
Someone wrote, your work is a derivative of, of and dependent upon his work, not the other way around. Christian, this is so liberating when we read this command, when we read any command, because our weakness is not our limit. Instead, our weakness is where God meets us. Through faith in Christ, he changes our hearts and our desires. He gives us the ability to obey even the hard things, even the dark secrets and the long-standing broken relationships. Your desires are no, are no longer bound to the fear of man or your ability, or your, and your ability is no longer captive to sin. In Christ, God is working in you and your wheel is turning and you have the power to work out your salvation. And real quick, let's ask why. Why is God doing this? For his good pleasure. Oh, friends, do not skip over those four beautiful, amazing words. It delights God to do this. To work in us the power we need to obey and to work out our salvation delights him. Just, just think about that. We want to obey. We have, we have that desire. We have the burden of not being able to obey. And instead of shaking his head and saying, figure it out, or just leaving us to ourselves, unable to do what he and we want, it delights him to make us to be able to do what he and we want. God delights in this. Listen to Jeremiah 32, verse 40. God says, I will not turn away from doing them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Friends, God delights in making us love him more in making our hearts fear him, in making us depend upon him and hope in him. That is God's pleasure and delight. And because it delights him, you know what that means? It means we know he will not stop doing it. He's not gonna say, yeah, I think today I've had enough delight, actually. I'm good, like pleasure tank's full. No, for God, for God working in us is like the dessert that you just never get sick of. Right? It's, it's your grandma's chocolate meringue pie. It's the best thing. I've already eaten three pieces. I'm going to eat another piece. Just give me a cup of coffee to go with it. It is so good. That is what working in us is to God. We are his dessert. He delights in it. And Christian, I don't know a better way to apply that than to tell you the Lord delights in giving you the ability to obey. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged know that the Lord, he's not going to throw you aside. He's not going to cast you away because of your weakness. That is where he meets you. And that's where he delights in giving you what you need the most. And if you're not in Christ, what are you waiting for? God delights in doing good to his people. Like, Whatever thought you have, this is what the Bible says. God delights in doing good to his people. So come to him, receive him through faith, and be freed from fear of sin, be freed from the fear of death, and instead be the delight 
of God. And friends, we see that this is a command, but we see that we can do it because we work out our salvation. We work by his power. Because God is working in us, we can work out our salvation. But let's keep moving. Paul's going to kind of cut to the chase now. He's going to show us very clearly what this looks like. Because we can keep saying, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. But let's narrow down here. What, what does this more directly look like? And what's the purpose of it? Well, we're going to see in verses 14 through 16. So look back with me as I read. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul's instruction here is helpful because it begins to give us a ground level, a practical picture of working out our salvation. And with this more detailed command, he's, he also gives us the purpose behind the command. But let's start with looking, what, what are, what's the actual command here? Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's two things I want to note about this command. First, when Paul says all things, he means all things. That means there's no exceptions to the rule. Not some things, not some of the time, not unless it's that one person that really gets under your skin. It's all things at all times to all people. And second, the idea of without grumbling and disputing. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. The actual command here. It brings to, to mind the relational aspect of working out our salvation. While you can kind of grumble to yourself and probably even about yourself, it's hard to dispute with yourself. I know there's some people that probably do it. I probably do it myself. But it's really hard to get into a good heated dispute just by yourself. So this means working out our salvation and not grumbling and disputing, it's not just about me. It's about the way we, as those in Christ together, work together. It's not just about me doing things right. It's not just about me growing in my holiness alone. Instead, there's this idea of growing with one another, specifically growing with one another in unity, because that's what, been what Paul's been talking about all throughout Philippians. And what does grumbling and disputing naturally lead to? Division, completely. Grumbling all the time, complaining, being critical, it never resolves anything. Just mumbling about your problems just causes people not to want to be around you. And to add disputes is just to kind of add the cherry on top. Because disputing is just simply silly arguments back and forth constantly. No one's even listening. We're just thinking about what we're going to say to the person when they get done talking, or maybe we don't even wait for them to get done talking. That's all disputes are. Grumbling and disputing lead to a complete lack 
of unity. There's no trust. There's no trust in authority. There's no trust in others. And they develop this constant, critical, complaining spirit. For an illustration, watch the news. Anytime. Watch the news. That is the division you see there. That's grumbling and disputing. Unfortunately, if we're honest, we see our own tendency to not follow this simple instruction. Someone made an astute observation writing, we are prone to think that the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ is a matter of indifference and that we are entitled to a little grouchiness and some grumbling. Even more, we can convince ourselves that a critical spirit is a spiritual virtue. I think he's exactly right. When I think even back to the way I think about myself, we are so individualistic that we think that my sanctification is about me. Church is about me. My relationships are about me. Therefore, I have the right to grumble. I have the right to dispute. It's my way. It's about me. It needs to be this way. I get it this way. I understand it that way. We feel entitled to this grouchy spirit. We think cynicism is a virtue. We justify it saying, well, someone's got to say it. No, actually, someone doesn't have to say it. You don't have to grumble. You don't have to dispute. That's, that's the good news. Friends, this call, passage is calling us to live lives, telling us that to live lives worthy of the gospel is to not grumble and dispute. And it's not just so we don't have conflict. There's an even better purpose. There's an even better purpose to our not grumbling and disputing, to having unity. Look back at the verse with me. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. So Paul shows us that our lack of grumbling and disputing, it it builds unity, it brings us together, but its purpose is so that we can be shining lights to the world around us. That's how we hold fast to the word of life. Its purpose is so that we can fulfill the commission of God's people. The language Paul uses here, it actually draws directly from Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, 5, Moses writes, they have dealt corruptly with him, so they being the Israelites out of Egypt, him being God, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So the reason the Israelites coming out of Egypt were no longer the children of God, they were blemished in a crooked and twisted generation, is because they grumbled and disputed. With God, about God, with Moses. See, the grumbling of the Israelites is a common refrain throughout Exodus and Numbers. Exodus 16.2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 17.3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled with Moses. You can keep going. You can look at Numbers 11. You can look at Numbers 14. Like, it keeps going. That was 
their posture. That was their attitude. That's what they did. And so they were blemished. But you see, the thing is, is that the Israelites, they were saved from Egypt to serve the Lord and to be his lights to the nations. Right? Because God saved them from Egypt because he remembered the covenant he had made with their fathers. Specifically with Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. That, that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. And if we look at Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your God's way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. The purpose of their redemption was to be the lights to the world. But because they grumbled, they were blemished. Because they grumbled, they couldn't fulfill that commission. That's what Paul's showing us in this text. So the purpose of his command to us to not grumble and to dis not dispute is so much more than just to have better relationships. It's so that we can work as his lights. So that as we work out our salvation, we work as his lights. And that we fulfill the commission that he's given to all of his people. The purpose is so that when people look in, they'll see blameless and innocent children of God. Not that we are better, but that we are different. So that we are not known as dissenters or conspiracy theorists or grumblers or disputers, but instead we are known as those who are gentle and do not grumble and do not eat each other from inside out. <laughs> and so that all those around us by the grace of God, will see the light of his redemption and what he's done. That he has brought people who have no business being together outside of Christ's blood. He's brought them together and they're like, I want that. That's how we serve as lights. Not grumbling, not disputing, but showing the goodness of Christ and what he's done to everyone around us. That's the purpose of doing all things without grumbling and disputing. And notice, that's how we hold fast to the word of life. We can think that holding fast to the word of life is listening for anything we disagree with just to get on it, to make sure, no, that's not right, to start a dispute. And we can trick ourselves into thinking this is holding fast to the word of life. But actually, holding fast to the word of life is to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that we can fulfill our purpose as lights to the world. That's what holding fast the word of life is. The other way of thinking is simply water to a flame. It's, it's taking a candle and just dumping five gallons of water on top of it. It's not gonna stay lit, there's no way. It extinguishes it immediately. Whereas our unity from not grumbling and disputing, it just adds fuel to the fire. So it burns brighter, so that people see the difference. They see what Christ has done, how he has unified us and distinguishes us from the world of constant name-calling and finger-pointing and division. So we are to work out our salvation as his lights, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. That's how we hold fast to the word of life, in humility toward one another and unity with one another. Now let's see how Paul finishes up this passage. And what we're going to see is that while we work by his power and as his lights, we also work for God's delight 
and our joy. So look back at verse 16 with me. Paul has explained that in not grumbling and disputing, we shine as lights in the world. Then verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul finishes second command of do all things without grumbling or disputing by explaining that the Philippians' obedience has a greater impact than their immediate reality. Their obedience has an impact on Paul, on the way he views his accomplishment as an apostle. Reading the second half of verse 16 actually can seem a little odd. Paul's talking about boasting. He ties the Philippians' obedience to his own pride in the day of the Lord. And it just seems odd. It just doesn't seem like Paul. But I think that looking at his illustrations helps us unpack what he's really trying to say. So he uses two illustrations. A runner running a race and a laborer working. Both of these illustrations carry a very simple idea, right? There's a job and there's a reward. The runner has one job, to run. And if he does his job well and wins the race, he receives a reward. And just like that, the worker or the laborer simply has to do his job. It's hard work, but if he does it, he receives the reward of finishing and seeing the product of his labors. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians their obedience is to him. His one job was to preach and teach the word, to proclaim the gospel and instruct the people of God. And his reward is to see the Lord work in them to give them the gift of faith and work in them to change their wills and works. So Paul's saying that in their obedience, it gives him something to point at and say, look at that. Look what God has done. He called me Saul. Remember that guy? He called me to preach and look what he has done. It's not their obedience gets him anything to be like, yeah, look what I have done. He's saying, look what God has done through me. The evidence of God's working in them is a source for boasting and joy for Paul. Their obedience is his object of boasting Paul for Paul because it is evidence that God has done in him and in them what he promised. So then Paul turns up his joy. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to boast in you guys. You keep obeying. But now we look at verse 17 and 18. He says, I'm already boasting. <laughs> Paul goes on to say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the language Paul uses here, he's possibly, probably talking about his own death. It's the same language he uses in 2 Timothy 4. Right, to be poured out. 
And he explains that whether death or life be the end of his current situation, he is willing, he is rejoicing, he is desiring to give all of himself to see the people of God work out their salvation. That is his joy. He is rejoicing with them. He is glad right now. He's glad right now in prison in Rome. This is a man that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what that looks like. And he's glad and he rejoices with them, knowing this very well will be his end. It's important to know what Paul means by joy. I do want to keep saying joy. Paul keeps saying he's glad. He's rejoicing. What does that look like? Is it simply just a superficial, plastered-on smile, like everything's going to be good, pat on the back, let go, let God, like this is all good? Or is it deeper than that? Is it more real than that? Is it more all-encompassing of all situations? I think the best way to describe it is the settled sense of peace that accompanies believers in plenty and in want because they know their lives are devoted to the advancement of the gospel. That's what joy is to Paul. It's the settled sense of peace that accompanies him, whether he has plenty or whether he has nothing, because he knows his life is devoted to the advancement of the gospel. That's what joy is. This is the joy that Paul had in his chains in Rome while he knew that the gospel is still being preached. This is the joy that Paul had that his ministry very well may be the end of him, but the Philippians are still obeying. He knows that the gospel is going forward to more and going forward in their hearts. See, this joy was not rooted in Paul's situation. Joy is not rooted in our state of mind. His joy was rooted in seeing God work, which is actually saying Paul's joy is rooted in God's joy, right? Because if we look back at verses 12 and 13, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, So God's working in us is making us to obey and to be lights of the gospel in the darkness of the world around us brings him joy. And that's what gives Paul joy to see. So Paul's joy is seeing in God, seeing God delight in you. Paul's joy is rooted in God's joy. So like Paul, as we see evidence of God's working in ours and in others' lives, we can Be glad and rejoice. No matter what the circumstance is. Which is why Paul tells us and calls us and commands us to be glad and rejoice with him. So we work for God's delight and our joy. And when we look at what Paul says in his command, there's really two aspects to this joy that we get to have. It's not just that It's just for me. There is a personal, but there again, there's this communal idea. Just like we work out our salvation without grumbling and disputing, which brings a communal idea, we rejoice 
with one another. Rejoice with him. In verse 17, Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, he commands us, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Our joy should be a shared joy. In both instances, there's that personal and communal aspect. So friends, that means that our lives personally can be marked with gladness and not gloom no matter the present situation. When our joy is a derivative from God's joy, then we always have a reason for joy because God's working in us. Not superficial joy, not a smiley face, but a peace, a peace in plenty and in want. So no matter the situation, whether it's at work or at home, whether it's a struggle, if you are in Christ, you can have joy in knowing that God is delighting in working in you. Even in your weakness, because he meets us in our weakness. Even in your suffering, the Lord delights in doing good to you, and he'll never cease from it. You can be glad and rejoice. In church, communally, we're called to rejoice with one another. And we have a whole bunch of reasons to do that. We have every single member here. We get to look and see what God has done and is doing in our, my life and your life and their lives. We have every reason to rejoice because we see how God is working and delighting in each one of us. We should be a place of rejoicing, not grumbling and disputing. Those things just rob us of our joy. Right? Because if grumbling and disputing extinguishes the shining light, then when we grumble and dispute, we rob ourselves because we're not seeing God work and no, neither is anyone else. So we must not grumble or dispute so that we can be lights to the nations and to the people and we can be a people of joy. Friends, this passage, on the surface, it has three commands. It seems like it's commands, but it's really an invitation. It's an invitation to work out what God works in. It's an invitation to stop banging our heads against the wall, stop being discouraged, but to be people of joy as we see God work in us and we work that out. It's an invitation to depend upon and rely upon him as the only source of power for our obedience. It's an invitation to work as the lights he made us to be. It's an invitation to work for his delight and your joy. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us work out our salvation. Let us work by his power. Let us work as his lights and let us work for his delight and our joy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you do not just leave us, but that you work in us, that through your Son, you invite us to you to work in us for your good, for your delight, and for our joy. Father, I pray that this passage delights us this morning to see that you continue to work through us at all times, 
that our obedience, we're not on our own, but we can rest in knowing you are working through us and so we can diligently and intentionally work out our salvation. Father, help us to work out what you work in. Help us to not grumble and dispute, but to be what you have made us to be, lights to all those around us. And Father, help us to have joy in seeing you delight in us. Let us be a people of immense joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.